It's great to be back here. I'm going to grab this stool over here for my water. It's great to be back here. Uh, last time I was here, I was here with my wife, Ryan, and we left that morning, and we said, what a wonderful morning it was here. What a, what a great time we had. Everyone was so welcoming. Um, the hospitality was great, so it's, it's really an honor and privilege to be back here today. The last time I was here, it was the end of October, but now, now we're in the Christmas season. So it's officially okay to start getting the decorations out, to start playing Christmas music. We, we got our decorations out last, or, or last night, actually. So our house is kind of in that in-between stage where you have all the boxes of Christmas stuff coming out and all the other stuff that's going back into the basement. Um, you know, if it was up to me, I'd start getting those decorations out in October. Maybe, maybe September. But uh, I love it going into Lowe's and you start to see the, the displays they have out. I know a lot of people frown at that in, in October, but I'm like, all right. See, I love Christmas. I love the whole Christmas season. Everything gets better at Christmas. People's attitudes improve at Christmas. People, people are just nicer in general. Everyone seems to be friendlier, with, with the exception of Black Friday morning, of course. But uh, <laughs> I always get a mixture of sadness and entertainment watching those videos. So mostly entertainment, but you know, the best foods are brought out at Christmas. We've got cookies, Christmas cookies. We have uh, the cheese logs, right? These, those cheese logs, the orange ones or the, uh, the, the port wine ones with the almonds on the outside, they come out at Christmas. And my favorite, which I only discovered a couple years ago, fruitcake. <laughs> Do we have any fruitcake fans here? Any? We got a couple. I'm not alone. We are few, but we're powerful enough to keep the industry going. <laughs> There's more traditions that come out of Christmas than at any other time of year. Those, those things that we look forward to every year, things that make Christmas the most wonderful time of the year. I'm sure that uh, everybody here has at least one, if not dozens, of traditions, you know, whether it's Christmas decorations or favorite ornaments or Advent calendars. Uh, making gingerbread houses, Christmas cookies, or fruitcake. <laughs> and then there's the Christmas specials, right? Can't forget about the Christmas specials. I remember uh, flipping through the TV guide when I was a kid, waiting to see what was coming on CBS because they were the ones that had the, had the Christmas specials. They were only on once a year, so I uh, made sure not to miss them. And my sister and I would sit on our green shag rug, and we'd watch the Christmas specials as they came on. The Charlie Brown Christmas special, Ralphie and his official Red Rider carbon action 200-shot range air model rifle. <laughs> There's March of the Wooden Soldiers. And every special, you yeah, have March of the Wooden Soldiers, right? Every special put out by Rankin Bass. But you know, with all these things that make Christmas the most wonderful time of year, if, if I were to go around in this room and ask everybody, what's the real reason for the season? I bet you I'd get the same answer from everyone. The real reason for the season is the birth of Jesus Christ, right? It's, it's a story that we know so well. I would, I would argue that out of all the stories in the Bible, this is the story that we know the most detail about, the story of the nativity. Let me prove it to you. So uh, what little town was Jesus born in? Bethlehem. Was he born in an inn, a house, or a stable? Stable, right? And what did they use as Jesus' crib? Who appeared to the shepherds? I didn't even give you that much detail on that question. 
And how many wise men were there? See, we know that story well, right? We know, we see nativities all over this time of year. We see the living nativities with real people in them. And then, and then we see, uh, you know, churches and houses, they have the, uh, the large light-up nativities in their front yard. And every year, uh, when I was younger, I always looked forward to getting out our special nativity and going through and finding, you know, baby Jesus and, and uh, Mary and Joseph and the angels. And then when I got married, my wife and I, we went out and we bought our own nativity. They're everywhere. My kids, I have two boys, uh, three and five, and they even have their own nativity, the little people nativity set. These, these my, my son allowed me to take three of them today, and he picked these out. So we have uh, baby Jesus, little people, we have the angel, and we have, who else did he give me? Joseph. So we have nativity scenes of all different kinds, and they're great. Nativities are a great visual reminder of the reason that we celebrate Christmas, right? It's great that we know so much about this story, but something happens. There's a warning. Something happens when something else becomes so familiar to us. When something becomes incredibly familiar to us, we tend to lose a sense of awe and wonder for it, and we just put it on our traditions list. Even a story as amazing as this. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take this story that we're so familiar with, and we're going to add another layer to it. On a layer that's going to give us a new perspective. It's going to help us remove it, if need be, from our just the traditions list and give us a new sense of awe and wonder for the story. And to really understand this story, we need to remember that the story of Jesus' birth is one that began long before the wise men ever made their journey to Bethlehem. See, the story didn't begin in Bethlehem. And it didn't begin in Nazareth, where Mary was confronted by the angel Gabriel to tell her that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah. The Christmas story didn't even begin in the Old Testament when the prophets were anticipating the Messiah. We must begin back before all of that, before, before the whole world came into existence and before humanity was formed. 1 Peter 1.20 says this, and speaking of Jesus, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but he was revealed to us in these last times for your sake. So here's why timing is important. Because if we think the story begins in Bethlehem or in Nazareth, then we could tend to think that the Christmas story is God's plan B. That it's a plan that God had to come up with after sin entered the world. But it's not. It's not God's plan B. Jesus is and always has been God's greatest gift to the world and the only plan for our salvation. The Christmas story has always been God's original plan. From the little town of Bethlehem to the angels to, to the wise men and the shepherds, God has always been in control of every detail of this, including the sacrifices that he would make. Now, when we think of the sacrifices of God, when we think of the sacrifices of Jesus, we, we naturally think of him dying on the cross. But there's other sacrifices that he made, and it's explained to us in Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8. And this is a very significant portion of Scripture because it describes to us the incarnation of Christ. That's when, when Jesus, when Christ, got a human body and became a man so that he could die for us. The Apostle Paul, he writes this. He says, you must have the same attitude that Christ, Jesus Christ had. Though he was God... 
He did not think equality with God as something to, be, something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. See, verse 6, it tells us that even though Jesus was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. In other words, he didn't grab hold and hold on to these privileges. It's saying Jesus didn't, didn't hesitate to put aside the privileges, the, the, the uh, possessions that were his. He had every right to stay on that throne in heaven. But because he was God, he knew that he was the only one that could rescue us. So he chose to lay down his privileges. Verse 7 goes on and it says that he gave up his divine privileges. The ESV says it this way. It says he emptied himself. And the words that uh, theologians use for this is kenosis. And it means to empty. So what does it mean that he emptied himself? What did he empty himself of? Well, first of all, we need to get this right. He did not empty himself of his deity, meaning he did not stop being God. He didn't stop being God and start being man. Jesus kept his God qualities, like being all-knowing and all-powerful. He just chose at different times to limit his use of those qualities while he was on earth. Uh, Jesus didn't empty himself of his deity or his godness. He didn't stop becoming God and, and, and uh, start, becoming, start being man. Because if he did, everything everywhere would cease to exist. See, Colossians 1, 16 and 17, it says this, For by him, this is speaking of Jesus, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. One commentary explained it this way. It says, For by him all things are sustained. That is, they are kept in their present state. Their existence, order, and arrangement are continued by his power. If unsupported by him, they would fall into disorder or sink back to nothing. So Jesus didn't stop being God ever. But the Bible also tells us that he was fully human. Okay, so if he's fully God, how can he be also fully human? Well, think of it like this. Jesus had two natures. One nature was 100% human. One nature was 100% God. And these natures, they work together in perfect unity. The two natures are one person. Jesus is not two persons, he's one person. The bottom line is this, when Christ emptied himself, it wasn't him getting rid of his God abilities, but rather he laid down and refused to use the status and the privileges that were his as creator. So with the remainder of our morning here, we're going to look at four personal privileges that Christ chose to lay down in order for him to become our most amazing Christmas gift ever. The first pr privilege that Christ laid down, was his glory in heaven. Jesus is God. And so when we speak of his glory, we speak of his splendor, his magnificence, his radiance, 
his weightiness in things like his might and his beauty and his justice. The Bible tells us that it's the glory of God that lights heaven. I just bought a bunch of LED bulbs last week and put them in our house, and they are bright. I can't imagine how bright heaven is with God lighting it. God's also surrounded by words and songs and offerings, praise 24-7, exalting him above everything else. Hundreds of years before Christ came to earth, the prophet Isaiah saw him in his heavenly glory. And this is what Isaiah describes that he saw. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they called to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah saw Christ in heaven. He saw him as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the royal king of the universe, the creator of all that exists. And he saw him being worshipped by these creatures called seraphim, and they had six wings. The seraphim means burning ones. And theologian R.C. Sproul, he said this, he said, these angels, or seraphim, have six wings, two each for flying, covering their faces and covering their feet. That they must cover their faces fits well with the Bible's description of God's glory as a blinding light, and even the angels cannot look directly on our Creator. These creatures, they would strike absolute terror in us if we saw them. Al Mohr, Dr. Al Mohr, he's a, another Christian theologian. He said this. It's not, it's not quite as theologically deep as what R.C. Sproul said, but Al, Albert Mohr said this. He said, when someone in the Bible saw an angel, they wet their pants. <laughs> Let me tell you, if I saw a burning six-winged creature, I'd probably do the same thing. Yet Isaiah saw these creatures, these seraphim. Get this, these terrifying creatures. Jesus gets their worship. They are worshiping Jesus. Isaiah also saw the train of the robe that Christ was wearing, which, by the way, the the length of the the train on a king's robe is a status symbol. The kings of old, they wore elaborate robes signifying their power and their significance. And the longer the train of the robe, the more powerful the king was. Because what would happen was he'd go into battle, and when he defeated another army, he would take that king's robe, cut a piece off of it, and sew it onto his. So they'd get longer and longer and longer. And this fits well with what Isaiah tells us. Isaiah tells us that Christ's train was so amazing that have filled the entire temple. And that's because Jesus is the victorious king over everyone. All of the glory that Christ had, he chose to set it aside. His status, his praise, his adoration, his worship, he chose for a season to leave it behind and come into the muck and the mire of this world. He gave up the worship of those adoring angels to come and be mocked and humiliated and ridiculed by men. Think of the stark contrast with that. The God who spoke all things into existence chose to leave glory 
and volunteer to spend nine months as a fetus in the womb of Mary. And then live in a world where he was put through the most humiliating situations ever by anyone. And he willingly orchestrated this. So Jesus laid down his glory in heaven, but he also laid down something else. Infinite riches. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 says this. It says, you know the generous grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Now, if Christ hired you as a travel agent to plan out his 33-year stay here on earth, chances are you'd find an extremely wealthy, prominent family for him to stay with. He'd go to the finest schools, have the best teachers in the world. He'd live in the, he'd live in the best area of town. If he asked you to pick a place for him to live, you would not have picked a stable to be born in. We would have sent out announcements and parades and celebrations. And Christ could have easily arranged for that on that day because the Jewish people in that day, they were eagerly awaiting for the Messiah to come. He could have been welcomed in with fanfare and celebration, but God chose something different. God owns everything in the universe from from every star to every molecule. He owns everything. Yet he chose to be born into a family of poverty. The son of a carpenter... And because of that choice, the God who owns everything came into this world and he had to spend his life borrowing things from people. He had to borrow a place to be born. He had to borrow a place to sleep since he didn't have a home. He had to borrow a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. He had to borrow a room to celebrate Passover. He even had to borrow a tomb to be buried in. The only person with the right to everything chose to have nothing. This is God, remember that. This is the God of the universe who made all things. And as God, he emptied himself. He emptied himself of his glory in heaven, his infinite infinite riches, and the next thing was his boundless freedom. When God left heaven to come to earth to be born as a human, he took on all the characteristics of a human. And we know uh, some of those can be very faulty. He took on... uh, the characteristic of uh, our characteristics physically, emotionally, mentally. Jesus became a human, and since he was human, he experienced the limitations of being human. His physical body, he experienced things. He grew. He became tired. He became hungry and thirsty. Think about that for a minute. The bread of life became hungry. The one who gives living water became thirsty. Jesus became weak. He bled. He died. All things Jesus never experienced before as God. Jesus' body was and still is fully human. Author David Mathis said this. uh, He said, The Word became flesh. In his his humanity isn't a costume. The eternal divine God didn't simply make a cameo appearance in the created world. He forever joined our humanity to his divinity and for all eternity will be fully God and fully man. To this day, his his glorified body still bears the scars that came from his crucifixion. In a manner of speaking, the boundless one became bound. The limitless one became limited. The unchanging one changed when he took on a body. 
Jesus also had emotions, human emotions. You know, the, he marveled at the centurion's faith. He, he wept when Lazarus died. He sought friendships during difficult times. John Calvin said, Christ put on our feelings along with our flesh. Jesus also had a human mind. Now, as we discussed, Jesus never stopped being God. Therefore, he is all-knowing. But when he was on earth, he chose to limit his knowledge at different times. We read in, in uh, Luke 2.52, it says, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. So we see that Jesus learned things while he was on earth. There were times where Jesus displayed his ability to be all-knowing, but there were also times where he chose to limit them and yield to his human mind. Speaking of the timing of his return, Jesus said in uh, Mark 13.32, concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. In every sense of the word, Jesus was human. So in order for Christ to come to earth and be born our Savior, he gave up his glory in heaven, his infinite riches, his boundless freedom, and lastly, he gave up his free will. Jesus laid aside the freedom of having his own will, and he became a servant and submitted himself to the will of the Father. The direction of Jesus' life that carried him to the cross was the will of the Father. Jesus said it time and time again that he was here to do the Father's will. The miracles that Jesus performed, the places that he traveled, the dis disciples that he chose, they were all subject to the will of the Father. John 6.38, speaking of God the Father, says this. It says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. When Christ came to earth, he completely submitted himself to the will of the Father and laid down his own free will. He even submitted to the Father's will when it caused him great anxiety. We see that in the garden uh, before his death, the night before his death, he prayed this to the Father. He said, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. And here's the thing I find amazing. Long before Christ ever came to earth, long before he was ever born in the flesh, while he was sitting on that throne in glory, he knew exactly what he was going to have to lay down. Christ knew in exact detail what he was going to have to empty himself of. Nothing on that earth came as a surprise to him. He didn't say, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting that. Nothing came as a surprise to him. He knew in the detail, he knew the humiliation and the pain that he was going to have to go through. But he also knew this. He also knew that we needed a Savior. Someone to pay the debt for our sins. And he knew that he was the only one that could do that. And so he emptied himself. But Jesus didn't stay emptied. No, he didn't stay emptied. He, Jesus was obedient to the Father in every sense of the word. And as his life was drawn to a close, Jesus prayed this to the Father. John 17, 4 and 5. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. And the Father did just that. Philippians 2, 9 and 10 says this, Therefore God elevated him to the highest place of honor and gave him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ was obedient to the Father, and he completed everything that he came here to do. And when it was all finished, the Father elevated him to the place of highest honor. He restored all the privileges that Christ laid down. Christ picked them back up, put them back on, and took his rightful position as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I want to throw a challenge out to you this Christmas season. And as I do that, I want to invite the band to come on up. But I want to throw a challenge out to you this Christmas season. As you're out running around the Christmas season, you're shopping, you're setting up your tree, you're eating pounds of fruitcake, because I can see you guys love that so much. As you're driving around looking at these Christmas displays and all the wonderful Christmas traditions, when you come to a nativity scene, stop for a minute. Stop and don't just look at it as another Christmas tradition or holiday piece, but look at it with a new sense of appreciation as you remember the privileges that Christ laid down to become our greatest Christmas gift of all.